I will say, if you want to take a feat, you can take Spell Sniper, which will actually double the range of your Thorn Whip to 60 feet. I said get over here! I mean, ironically, if they had increased its range, it would have been a way worse ability because it would have taken that much longer for the animation. Live from the Mundangerous Situation Room in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 203 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we do our part and buy war bonds as we discuss running wartime campaigns. But first the rogue traders brawl in the streets in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Scorpion gets you over here. Toasty. In the Character Creation Forge. So this is episode two, since Podcat has arrived, recorded literally ten minutes after episode one. <laughs> he is now asleep in our lap, and I think this will be a meow-free episode. <laughs> okay, well, one meow. Just me. Not it's just bad. me. Also, I should I should put it out there. If you want to see pictures of Podcat, aka uh, F Cat Fitzgerald, you can find them on Discord and only on Discord. Uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna start an awe channel so that you can keep all your dumb pictures in there yeah exactly it's just because you don't want to see it in general <laughs> all right so this week total party thrill is brought to you by D beyond the official digital tool set and game companion for dungeons and dragons you can use D beyond to build characters track them in your campaigns run adventures and do so much more they're actually in beta on an encounter builder right now you can also build campaigns and track characters to make sure that nobody's uh, doing the math wrong. Yes, there you go. You said it. You said it, and I'm glad you did. Or otherwise, you know, cheating themselves. <laughs> right, <laughs> which happens all the time. As we found was actually more common at our table was people don't math good. Right, and don't look up all the spells that they have access to. Right. <laughs> Xanathar's God has spells. Yeah, some really good ones. You should check it out. Right. <laughs> D&D Beyond also has lots of awesome content available for free, like the D&D Basic Rules, as well as articles from great writers like James J. Heck and videos from Todd Kenrick. It's also getting updated all the time with a bunch of new features. Uh, I log on there sometimes, or I I guess I have the players log on there sometimes. They're like, wow, hey, you can do this thing now. And it's sort of 50-50 whether you could always do that thing and they just figured out how to do it. Or you actually can now do that thing. Yeah, no. I, with, the nice thing about joining D&D Beyond right now is that it's had like a good year and a half to bake. So everything from a player perspective is pretty locked in. It's really more around campaigns and some of the GM tools where they're really making improvements. So it's nice to be on a, a stable, well-supported platform. All right. So you can check all of that out at dndbeyond.com. So Shane, speaking of a, a stable, well-supported platform that exploded when the Techno Gangers uh, set a mine, uh huh. Where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy Second Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games, and on the Deathworld Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and profit 
So having just established an Arbitace training center in the North Manufactories, the rogue traders now seek to wrest control of the district from uh, their two rival factions, the criminal techno-gangers and the mercantile guild peacekeepers. The only thing so far keeping us from being uh, completely destroyed in this area is that they're also fighting each other. Uh-huh. Which is great. Yeah, this was the kind of one of the techno-gangers' techno bases of influence, and uh, now two rivals have moved in on them, and they don't like either of you. So, the techno-gangers have recruited a militia uh, using the narrative that Roth Enterprises, that is us, are terrorists mm-hmm. destabilizing the district yeah Which you yeah. are we yeah we did we did blow up quite a few things but they also blew up quite a few things right around here uh-huh. like they blew up that hab block and that was not us they blew up your stuff yeah first yeah you had bought that hab block evicted all of the tenants and they blew it up i mean we're economic terrorists sure <laughs> right <laughs> yeah you are generally you know harming the working class citizens who work and reside in the north manufactories we absolutely did that yes um, however, they are being uncivil about it and talking about it out loud, which is even more inappropriate. <laughs> yep. So you now have your uh, well-trained Arbitace uh, and set about countering that narrative, uh, mostly by ruthlessly establishing law and order uh, on the back of their carapace armor and their stun batons. Right. The Arbitace are cops. So we also brought in the cops. You brought the cops. Yes. So the first class of our Arbites don't need to wait very long at all for on-the-job training because since we're not even really talking to the techno-gangers, there's obviously very soon going to be a violent showdown. Mm-hmm. So uh, my character, Trank, who is a sniper, and Trix, who is technically our seneschal but also has a very big sword. Uh, and also <laughs> has a very big mouth. Yes. <laughs> now the biggest mouth in the party since uh, Draco had his shot off. Mm-hmm. Uh, square off with the Techno Gangers militia at five points. Um, five points. Was that perhaps named after the five points in Lower Manhattan? Uh, no, it was named after the five points on the map that I arbitrarily decided to use for this as the city map. But yes, <laughs> it was uncreatively uh, co-opted from gangs of new york which is Perfect. pretty much the show that you're about to put on uh, yeah i think as soon as we were like wait is this gangs of new york he said yeah i think it is we're like good we're in let's do Great. this okay yeah. <laughs> fist fight in the streets yes <laughs> banners waving <laughs> right bricks do we bring all the las guns i don't, I don't know it just feels, that feels unfair right so yeah there's a firefight in the streets it is brutal and it is bloody and as the dust begins to settle the Arbites are standing firm and the Techno-Ganger militia is in full route. Imagine that. The guys in carapace armor with stun batons and laser rifles mm-hmm. won against like the peasant mob. Right. Or I guess they're Techno-Gangers, right? They've got like four piercings in each ear and like strange like wraith bone bracelets and, you know, like cobbled together Xenotech. Well, these are, these are militia, so they're probably like hab workers and friends of techno gangers and and less so you know organized by techno gangers but not necessarily members of the gangs oh wow we're really bad people okay yeah great. i mean it's militia you do what you do <laughs> so uh needless to say they suffer considerable casualties <laughs> and ultimately uh the militia goes to ground and disbands um or at least you know stops showing up for meetings which is basically the same when it comes to militia however the techno gangers 
are canny opponents, and their counter-intel units, which we have dealt with before, keep spinning the narrative to their own ends. Yeah, basically, they're like, cool, so you brought the police to then murder a bunch of citizens. (laughs) It's almost like that doesn't play well in the press. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Thanks for bringing law and order. I mean, a government boot on our throats. Yep, so they're threatening a populist uprising against us that even our nascent police academy might not be able to contain. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. Are we the bodies? (laughs) So this week, speaking of good guys and bad guys, we're talking about playing and running wartime campaigns. Shane, what do we mean by that? So there's a couple different things. Um, A wartime campaign is a campaign set during a kind of globally dominant military conflict, right? Think something like World War I, World War II, where basically no place on the globe isn't somehow affected by this battle uh, or war. Or it's a campaign set in a kind of a defined war zone where you are directly impacted. So this would be more like the Iraq War or Vietnam. Right. Or something like um, a, a more ancient war where like the entire world isn't embroiled, but like maybe the known world, right? The Punic Wars. Yeah. Or I mean, like um, the uh, the Battle of Troy, right? Like that's a that right, had just a, one city, a huge impact on Troy and a lot of Greeks. But honestly, if you were in Africa, it didn't matter at all. So, yeah, that's the key here is that the war is impacting the world immediately around the characters. Um, they they cannot escape the fact that this war is happening in some capacity. They might be enlisted, right? They might be soldiers, or they might be veterans of the war, right? Or they might be yet to serve. They might have the potential to be conscripted or drafted, even if they're not at the front right now. Yeah, it could be that they have family or friends who are fighting. They could be fighting and have family and friends fighting. They could be about to fight or possibly be conscripted but already have friends who are who are involved. They could be trying to be non-combatants and yet, you know, they're being dragged into this in some way. Yep. Um also important is that for whatever, you know, nation or group that they're a part of, this is going to be a major political issue and a major kind of initiative going on, right? It's going to siphon resources and attention to this war effort for whatever reason that you're fighting. Yeah, there's a lot of potential here for things happening on the home front, you know, like leading right up to the war. And even during the war, like a lot of the decisions happening on the battlefield are because of decisions that were made in boardrooms or like in Senate chambers. Right. So what are uh, some of the reasons that a group might want to run a wartime game? So I think, first of all, from a GM perspective, it's helpful because it imposes some guardrails on the PCs. Um, it is it is definitely easier to direct an overarching plot if the PCs are kind of assigned missions, right? And they you have a clear sort of meta construction of hey, we're fighting. Uh, everybody is doing things to try and win this war. Right. It's the draw of playing Imperial Guard, right? In only or, war <laughs> or the rebels, even right in right in Star Wars. You mm-hmm. know, whatever you're doing is in service of the Rebel Alliance, like to win this war of which is right and just. Yeah, it can be really alluring as a player to like have the premise of the game be uh, it's wartime and you're fighting on the right side. Like there's immediate buy-in from everybody. You're already all on the right side. Like maybe we do meet in a tavern, but we already have common motivation and goals. Right. Um, and then I think it also 
imposes guardrails in, in sort of a different way. Like even if you have um, agency, like your spies or rebel operatives or something like that, there's still going to be areas of the map or kind of areas of the story that are going to be functionally off limits, right? Like a rebel is not going to infiltrate like the Imperial Senate, right? Like it's just going to be very difficult to do that because that's on Coruscant. It's a core world and like the, the Empire is not going to let that happen. You know, so you don't have to worry about the players having just like this broad sandbox and just going wherever and having to find story and plot wherever they go. You've got a little more of an idea of what direction they're headed. Right. Like maybe there's someone in charge telling them not to do that. But also, like, even if they ignore those kinds of orders, like if you want to get to that place that you want to explore, it's on the other side of the front. Good luck doing that. Right. Uh, and this is the difference between like a typical spy game and a war game. Like in Knights Black Agents, you have characters who are like super spies. They're a team of super spies. And, you know, if they want, they can decide to like hop on a private jet or steal a private jet and like yeah. <laughs> head directly to mainland China and like do whatever they want to like search out the vampire conspiracy. Yeah, but that almost cannot happen for a Delta Green agent, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's set during Vietnam. So getting to mainland China as an uh, as an American Delta Green agent is basically impossible because China's backing the war or backing the Vietnamese. Uh, wartime games also sort of like um, counterintuitively give PCs more freedom to operate. So the kinds of settings that you're playing in, there's often martial law. You know, you, like you can kick in doors uh, in order to like investigate things or or to chase uh, people down without necessarily having the law breathing down your neck because like maybe there is no real law right um, all there really is are your mission parameters like this is the uh, this is what you're trying to accomplish often that comes with by any means necessary or by any means necessary short of violating the Geneva Convention <laughs> right <laughs> or I mean in like fantasy settings right like you might have treaties with certain um like certain races right like the the humans and the elves have have a treaty and and the elves won't be subject to whatever conditions but if an elf is helping the enemy like that's within your mission parameters you get to just violate those laws <laughs> like you get to track down that elf who's feeding information to the orcs for yeah whatever weird reason fog of war is crazy i don't know yeah, exactly <laughs> this is the friendliest of fire right um and then also keep in mind like a lot of times the stakes of a war are incredibly high and that lets you cut a lot of corners, right? So if you are trying to prevent the Nazis from getting the, uh, the, what the Holy grail, right. In order to have their bizarre, you know, arcane ritual completed and I don't know, bring around a worse Holocaust, then it really doesn't matter how many people you kill on the way, right? Like Nazis, not Nazis. It it really doesn't matter if they're in the way of you stopping this like obvious, you know, super weapon from coming to fruition. Like they're an acceptable casualty. Or, you know, it's a chance for there to be that moral dilemma of like, uh, this village is in the way of like that terrible ritual. Right. You know? (laughs) And if we stop it, well, that that village is definitely doomed. Do we? Do we not? If we sacrifice this village for the counter-ritual, perhaps we can stop the incursion. I'm going to assume that village is full of Nazis. <laughs> um, in more modern settings, things like surveillance and, and other sort of like privacy and... Um, those types of crimes are more easily justified when you've got, you know, the war effort is the justification. So um, 
everyone sort of accepts that this is normal in a war and then you know it never really gets clawed back in peacetime yeah and you can set this up uh where like it's a gray area you know maybe the pcs can get away with it because it is a wartime but there would be other people that wouldn't like it or maybe wouldn't trust them once they found out that they did it or like there can be social repercussions for these types of things but you do have more freedom in that they don't automatically end you up in the stocks yeah Um, You also get a lot of freedom as a PC because a lot of times you're serving very broad objectives, right? Win the war, Um, you know, stop the orc invasion, Um, overthrow the empire. Um, This can create a lot of opportunities for personal conflicts. Um, You know, you get opportunities for like profiteering and self-service and, you know, padding your own coffers uh, in the process. Yeah, this can be uh, a way to play up intra-party tension. There might be some people who are very interested in that and others who are not interested in any way. And then, I mean, it's the paladin and and rogue scenario, right? Like, is it okay for you to get paid? Is it okay for you to only do this if you get paid? Right. Yeah, there's like that weird dichotomy where like if you fight a war with mercenaries, the mercenaries stop getting paid if they win the war. (laughs) Right. So like the perfect outcome for a mercenary is to win every battle, but never actually end the war. Right. Well, we only want to fight useless battles. Right. And basically, you know, this is the military industrial complex, <laughs> even <laughs> even in a pre-industrial age. <laughs> so another piece of wartime campaigns that I think is really important is that a lot of times the war itself isn't actually the interesting plot development. Right, like where you get the fun in an RPG campaign typically isn't tracking like you know the Allies' movement across France and into Germany, right, or like the the shifting war front between the um, New Republic and the Yuuzhan Vong, right. But where you do get really interesting kind of development is in the actual PCs and their personal development, and as they're dealing with um, what the impact of the war is to them personally. Yeah, like, remember that the vast majority of war games that you're going to play are going to be based on actual wars in, like, real Earth's past. So, usually what happens is you don't, like, make up a war out of whole cloth or, like, you might be playing in an alternate history, but only a few specific things change. For the most part, people have have a good idea of, like, where this war is going and like what the outcome is and how it ends or when it ends. Um, so like that's sort of all happening in the background. Um, the important thing that's happening on the ground in your sessions is how your characters are dealing with the kinds of things that are happening around them and the particular activities that they are either choosing or being forced to do. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's true for historicals. I think when you talk about a lot of like, fictional settings a lot of times the setting is kind of embroiled in the war and the the idea that you are going to end the war in your game sort of violates the core assumption of the setting right like you know that the scope of your campaign can't include the rebels overthrowing the empire right like you could do some cool stuff and make like maybe some wins in a sector but you will never actually finish the war right so by necessity almost like you can't dangle that plot development as as the important thing to latch on to so you have to make it more personal right especially in settings where like the end of the war is the end of the setting yep 
like in 40k the, the war can't end right exactly <laughs> what would we be left with the war might end here for right. now <laughs> so when you look at these personal impacts right i think you, you kind of have to decide on the tone of the game that you're going for um, and that sort of helps you figure out what are the impacts that you should be exploring um, on the individual characters. So if you want something realistic, you want to look at things like confronting death and having to kill and like the sort of tragedy of seeing like close friends and also just like untold thousands sacrificed uh, in a war machine. Right. You'll probably want to touch on things like survivor's guilt. You know, if you're playing a character, it means that so far that they've survived. Um, there are definite possibilities for trauma and how people are dealing with that, either in healthy or unhealthy ways. Um, and not just mental trauma, too, right? I mean, that could be physical. Right. Um, that, that's definitely like a key theme in a lot of sci fi war settings is like oh you have a you know you have an augmentic leg now or, or you have like a robotic hand because that's that's just one of the scars i mean in a lot of these games like the the trauma track is the one that actually has you die right right like you you, you don't usually die a physical death you like can repair those those parts or you know you like narrowly avoid death but your traumas build up and eventually you are unplayable yeah you either get exploded into a million pieces or you put the part back on right <laughs> Um, and then, you know, on the plus side of, of realistic tone, you, you get into like concepts of honor and bravery and self-sacrifice, right? And like the idea of like the, the brotherhood in arms and, and sort of that like fighting together in the trenches, right? And gutting it out through the difficult times together. Right. Like if you're playing a realistic game where, you know, people die and like the people that you care about also die, then undertaking almost any kind of conflict or action. You know, the the thing that sort of makes up the bulk of most RPG games is an act in and of itself of bravery or stupidity or both, you mm -hmm. know? And you can really dig into, like, the, the reasons why your character is willing to do this again above and beyond, like, hey, we're here to play this game and, like, that's what this game is about, you know? Right. Rolling the dice. Then I think for the more heroic tones, right? And this is this is probably more like D and D fantasy kind of war. Mm -hmm. Like it's about the glory and honor, and and it might even be about like a almost a racial pride. Um, you know, like humans versus orcs or elves versus orcs, right? Or um, you know, lions like, versus horde. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? But there's like there's a there's a nobility in this fight. Right. And, and we're fighting for like the right side and the incontrovertibly right side. Uh, and we are like the bright against the darkness. Yeah. Like in our birthright game, um, we like our entire group was playing the ruling council of a country. And like we got into a wartime game because we started a war. Yeah, well, that yeah. was the cheapest and most efficient way to yeah. move forward. It it was, yeah. We were reuniting our country. Right. It's just they happened to call it their country. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which used to be actually their country. Yeah, but we yeah, we definitely didn't get into, like, you know, the personal level trauma of, like, individual soldiers, right? Right. Or even really the moral dilemma of, like, usurping what is effectively a democratic government <laughs> yeah it was about like nationalism and glory and honor you know right rah rah right. um also 
you run into in heroic tone games this concept of the the champions clashing on the battlefield Mm -hmm. is what sort of determines the fates of their armies right like a very like greek myth or even like lord of the rings has the same thing when sauron falls right like right like uh there's the scrum but then everyone eventually sort of like circles around the two great champions as they duke it out while everyone else is still fighting behind them right yeah like like what ajax dies and then everybody like just kind of walks back to their tents right and it's like cool no more fighting today yeah well yeah that's very like uh david and goliath right like let's choose our champions and we won't even have a big battle in the background right um so so those that's like another thing that like doesn't make any realistic sense right that's totally a, a narrative and kind of storytelling device but within the confines of the fiction of like heroism like it's great you know it's like it's a chance for you to have those kind of set pieces in the in the background of this scrum like the the two the two generals find themselves on the battlefield right yeah like what yeah <laughs> why, exactly why would that happen why does Jon snow always lead from the front <laughs> no. it's what you had to do in the old days i guess um i will say though that there sometimes truth is stranger than fiction right like there is an occasional blending of this if you are playing a realistic game where like if you read medal of honor recipients uh like the the listing of like what they actually did in combat it reads like fiction mm-hmm. right like it, it reads like and suddenly there were like one person standing against 80 and right. like they came out victorious right of course remember like 90 percent of those are posthumous so yeah <laughs> they're like glorious last stands right um, but like, I, I think the impact of that is not like, not the sort of posthumous, uh, glorification, right? Like the idea that one person stayed behind so that 30 people could escape, right? Like those types of activities are, are, are real regardless of what the odds were. Mm-hmm. So then another thing to kind of think through on the personal front is how does society view the warriors who returned from the war? You know, like it's taken for granted, I think, in a lot of um, fantasy settings that like soldiers are just that's just a job that exists. And wars are just a thing that happened from time to time. And like there's a good chance everybody knows somebody um, who was a soldier or, you know, at least a mercenary um, if you're in the adventuring lifestyle. But that's not really accurate for a lot of settings. Mm hmm. Yeah, especially more realistic settings or more modern settings, really. Like, it could be like a a far advanced sci-fi setting. And it's probably likely that, you know, if you are a soldier, then that is one of many different occupations you could have. Yeah. Like, you look at um, something like, uh, well, actually, both Star Wars and Star Trek, right? Like, Star Wars, you could be in the Rebel Alliance, but the Alliance is, is very small. And there are a lot of people like smugglers and random Wookiees who are, like, not a part of it. So that's actually the, the Rebel Alliance is a really interesting example here because, and if you if you take out the EU right and you just look at where like the new canon is, like it's not super clear how like the Rebel Alliance and then like the um, whatever the the second rebellion is against the New Order, like how they're going to be viewed by just random planets that have now shifted governments but weren't necessarily like grossly affected like if you're just a random planet off on like sort of the outer reaches of imperial space like the war might not really have affected you at all and like cool there was an imperium and a senate and like now there's i don't know a new republic and a different senate like what do i really care about those like those rabble rousers from the rim who decided to go upset things right i think like the huts on tatooine do not care yeah like nothing has changed right 
so a rebel returning home might have actually like done fought for the right side and and really gotten no recognition at all afterwards right or you something some like firefly like you come back and you're probably playing a character that was on the losing side right you know and and, and in real life right i think this was kind of a shocking thing that happened in american history like the way that world war ii veterans were treated compared or korean veterans as well compared to vietnam veterans right where like society welcomed the the former back and did not welcome the latter back at all i mean it was the public was very divided on the war itself and whether it should be prosecuted and whether it should have was should have ended earlier and whether people should have even like been sent over in the first place right and then also blamed them for being sent over there too i think right upon their return yeah so you know you're going to want to consider how it is that the populace back home thinks about whatever war is happening yeah um so drawing from more fantasy things um so in the garrett pi series which is by glenn cook the guy who wrote um the black company it's kind of his like pulp detective novel um series the like so the main um empire of carenta like has been at war for you know seven or eight generations with with another nation um and they end up like over the course of the series like by happenstance unrelated to the characters the war ends and so now all of these people are returning home right but the way that the war was fought is they had alliances with all the non-humans who continued to live in the cities during the war Um, but every human male of age got sent to fight and a lot of women got sent to fight and like now all these veterans are returning home and finding that like elves or dwarves have taken their jobs and now like there's this weird resentment over like what was earned as a as a member of this empire when you didn't have to fight yeah i i think if you are running a wartime game there is the chance to expand it beyond its original parameters right mm-hmm. like okay we're we're running a game that is happening during a war maybe your party ends the war maybe the war ends having nothing to do with the party but then you can go directly into the aftermath of the war and it's still it's very much influenced by what was happening during that wartime game i mean all of eberron is like a post-wartime setting right yeah eberron is like the perfect end war or not even post it's like paused war right right it it could come back at any moment who knows but like yeah canonically it's uh two years after the war ended like every single person in that setting fought in the war or was trying not to fight in the war right so when you put together kind of a wartime campaign, there are definitely some setting questions that you want to think about um, that are going to help you sort of determine what this looks like. Yeah. First thing is, how long has the war been running? Is it brand new? Did it just start? Do the characters remember when it started? Remember the lead up to it? Has it been going on for years and maybe some of them are too young to remember? Or is it generations and there's literally nobody alive who even remembers when there wasn't a war? Right. And then keep in mind... Um, if you if you get away from realistic settings like this could be totally different depending on what race is involved mm. right 30 years is a generation for humans but it's barely childhood for elves so you know who knows if you're long-lived or, or exceptionally short-lived right 30 years is half a lifetime to like a goblin right you get this in in eberron right the year the war lasted 100 years it ended two years ago there are zero humans alive who remember the beginning of the war but almost every elf alive does 
Right. And there are like zero dragons who even care that there was a war. Right. <laughs> it's not a thing. Who cares? They're like, oh, that happened? Yeah. Wait, that's over? Didn't that just start? Years? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Faster than I thought. Um, another thing is to look at the question of, is there an end in sight? Right? Like, is this, especially as you talk about a war that's been running longer, um, is there re- realistically an expectation that this will end anytime soon? You know, look at which side is winning and which side is losing and how they see that. Right. And has that changed a lot? Has there been an ebb and flow in the fortunes of war over however long it's lasted? Uh, and then who is winning and who is losing is also dependent upon your perspective, right? Like you mentioned before, mercenaries, like mercenaries might be very much like, oh, no, like this is bad. It really looks like someone's getting the upper hand or like war profiteers. Yeah, exactly. And then keep in mind, like, kind of where the war is along its campaign, right? So are you kind of on your, like, final march to victory? Um, are the, the players playing on the side that's just desperately trying to stave off defeat? Um, is it really balanced? Is it kind of shifting back and forth? One of the Gaunt's Ghost books has them uh, show up on a planet where, like, the PDF has been fighting, like, with... Uh, another nation um, who've like fallen to chaos and they've been fighting for hundreds of years and they're super insulted when the Imperial Guard decides to bring like real tactics to the planet and like the expectation here is like oh yeah no we're we're losing this war slowly but like we won't lose this war for like 400 more years so we're not going to change our tradition like tradition is more important than victory yeah I mean if we win without tradition then it's a loss Right. <laughs> Who would we even be? <laughs> Not dead? <laughs> right. What good is that to me? <laughs> we sure would like to capture that extra 100 yards that we gave up the last 15 years, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, one idea I really like to explore, so the combination of, like, where are you in the war and, like, and what do people think of it or what is their experience of that war is... Um, when you're dealing with like sci-fi settings or fantasy settings, you can have people who were present when the war started and not, not even just like we're alive and remember it. Like I'm an old elf, but you can have the people who began the war mm-hmm. still be alive. Even a very, very long time later when the vast majority of people don't like who are fighting the war, don't actually remember the the causes behind it in the first place. Right. Or like you can get the situation where one side, the person who began the war is still alive, but their initial opponent either died in the war or like was of a race that is much shorter lived. And so like Mm -hmm. has died, but now their descendants or like, you know, the, the people who have inherited rank from that person are the ones prosecuting the war. In a less realistic setting, you can really dig into like the actual real motivations of the person who, who started this because they're still there. Right. That's actually, that's kind of funny when you talk about like Warcraft and Horde versus Alliance, right? Because there aren't any long-lived races on the Horde side. Um, But the elves, of course, are on the Alliance side and so are the dwarves. So like they're, they're, this is barely a generation of war for them. Whereas like the humans have been at war for, you know, whatever, 50 years. So basically forever. Although I guess, I mean, real human wars have lasted up to a hundred years, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So another thing to think about from your setting perspective is how do the sides rate? Um, Like just kind of what are they good at? What are they bad at? Right. What is their strategy? How is their leadership? 
What's their training and discipline? Like, how does that inform how they fight? You need to have more of one thing to make up for a lack in another in order for it to make sense that this war is not already over. Right. So, like, if you don't really have strategy and leadership or training, then maybe you just got a ton of manpower or lots of explosives or tech. Yeah. Like, you know, you know what helps win wars? Materiel. <laughs> Like if right. you could just keep pouring more into the war front, you tend to be okay. Right. It's a war. Uh, the other side is one guy. Right. But he has a really big gun. <laughs> he has a Death Star. It's one guy in a Death Star. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we've alluded to this a lot of, around this, but politics is also an important factor here. Um, you can kind of take a cue from civilization in that regard that, you know, democracies tend to like Sid Meier civilization, like Sid Meier civilization, yeah. right? Like if you are a democratic government, people tend to vote against prolonged wars. Um, if you are a dictatorship or like a fascist or a communist, they tend to endure them a little easier. Yeah. We have always been at war with Eurasia <laughs> because it's super popular in the polls. <laughs> All right, so how do you go about actually running this wartime game? Okay, so I think there's two main archetypes for running wartime games. We're really only going to talk about one of them. Um, but So you've got the idea that PCs are the boots on the ground. They're you know out there um, fighting, reconning, gathering intelligence, spying, whatever. Um, or you have the idea that PCs are kind of high command, ordering missions, you know, dealing with the sort of campaign level problems. Um, so for this episode, I, I definitely want to talk about the latter. But for this episode, let's focus on just PCs or boots on the ground fighting in the war in some capacity, because that kind of lends itself to more RPG systems. Like all you really need is some combat mechanics and you can fight that kind of campaign. Yeah, and then you know you're dealing with like um, all of the motivations and repercussions that we mentioned before, which come into play less impactfully when you're just high command. Right. Plus, also you can just use rules from Risk. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So first off, you can set the PCs up as a group of special ops. Um, this helps explain why there are only a few of them rather than like you know fifty. Right. Um, and why they uh, tend to be much more powerful than you would expect from like a low-level grunt. Right. Um, and then that also, by kind of catering them towards more special ops, you're also giving them some freedom to decide how to execute a mission, right? Like, it's pretty hard when you just are a PC who gets ordered to take the next trench. Like, there's really only one way, and that's up and o over. Like, mm -hmm. and, and like, let's roll to see if you get shot. Exactly. Let's roll to see where you got shot. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's going to be that exciting of a campaign. So if you can do something where you have more freedom um, to operate, then you get a more interesting, you know, play experience. So this can be a formal military unit. You know, they could be like a group of Navy SEALs or special air service. It could be a paramilitary unit. So they could be like a CIA operative team or like a team of mercenaries. Or it could just be like an ad hoc assignment, you know, like oh, you're a squad in this regiment and you drew short straw and now you get to go do this awful mission that's going to set you far and wide apart from the rest of your regiment, you know, or you're the survivors of a raid and now you have banded together because you're the only ones left and you're behind enemy lines and you want to get back to your side. So on top of that, you're going to want to ensure that the PCs have personalities and flaws beyond just whatever their job is, right? Beyond 
the like a team like demolitions in the yeah, face I'm, and I'm the medic yeah you're soldiers right so it's possible that you could be greedy or selfish or murderous or you could be good guys that's always the kind of like <laughs> the trope of the the soldiers like oh yeah i'm in the military because i really wanted to kill people <laughs> right and cool. then thrown together with like in the same party with like the the one who's like oh yeah i'm in the military because i'm really idealistic and I, i'm selfless and i wanted to help people <laughs> Right. <laughs> that recruiter like, did a great job. <laughs> or you sometimes you get people who are in the military, like that trope of being like kind of too smart for their own good or too philosophical, right? Like they think too much, um, which makes them kind of like they struggle to adapt to following orders or, or doing things that they have moral challenges with. Or they're the one who's like, I just want to go to college, man. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, and then is a like when you identify these as a GM, right? Like this kind of, tells you where you put your missions or like what kind of missions you want to structure and what kind of challenges you want to include that are going to like challenge the who the characters are not just what can their skills accomplish Mm -hmm. Uh, so when you assign these missions you're going to want to give missions with very specific objectives but broad operating parameters here's a goal that is kind of loosely defined and in terms of how you actually do it and accomplish it i don't know it's up to you yeah like we need you to recover this intelligence i don't really care how you go do it you're experts you'll figure it out but we need this bad they the party is either assumed to be competent enough that they can carry out this mission or expendable enough that it doesn't matter if they carry it out or not yeah so you're not going to get you're not going to get your whole mission plan laid out to you by your commanding officer you're going to get the instructions the parameters and go so then you're going to want to introduce complications. Uh, players, <laughs> expect complications. Nothing's mm-hmm. ever going to go off without a hitch. So as a GM, like, obviously you want, like, obstacles, right? Like, a mission has to be overcoming some obstacle, and, and that should be pretty, like, basic, right? That's that's an RPG. But you also want to add complications that are going to impact the characters specifically. So it could be an opportunity that arises during the mission that either tempts them personally for some like personal goal or personal vice um, or something that could give extra value to their side. Right. Like uh, an optional objective that would be much more valuable on this mission. Right. could also be a critical development. Um, they uncover a plot or weakness or some enemy maneuver that needs to be relayed to high command. It's unexpected and needs to be dealt with. Yeah. And maybe like you, you pose the question, like they have to decide is completing this mission more important um, than re- relaying whatever we've uncovered. And like, should we abort our mission and fail or should we like press on and try to accomplish both? I mean, either way, high command is going to yell at them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. Actually, if you're going to get yelled at either way, you might need proof that you're not cowards or failures, especially if you're like in the Imperial Guard and are likely to be executed. Yeah. So remember that the game should be a, as much about the impact of the war on the PCs as it is about the impact of the PCs on the war. Um, we talked about this a bit already, but you want to give people a chance to express how what they're doing in the game is affecting their outlook um, or like the way that they feel about themselves or, or their connections to other people in the party. Um, it might even be that like their personalities change. You know, you come in like bright eyed and idealistic and end up hard bitten or, you know, maybe even vice versa. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, maybe you kind of find yourself in this war because you're competent <laughs> unexpectedly. Right. You have a purpose now. Uh, but right. of course, you know, a very common theme is disillusionment. Yeah, I feel like that one hits close to home a lot. <laughs> but um, but yeah, of course, like fighting in a war and being a soldier is difficult. Um, people might join for reasons that are optimistic and find out that like it's just harder than it should than they thought it would be. Right. And then, you know, both of those have pitfalls of of their own right if if you find out that you kind of flourish in uh wartime then when the war is over and you're back home it could be much more difficult to uh, readjust to civilian life right all right so let's talk about some uh, potential pitfalls of a wartime game so uh we call this out with other things a lot but i think it's also really important here like war is a real thing that affects real people, uh, likely people at your table. So session zero can be really important here. Um, the more that you try to interject realism into the game, the more that those themes can hit close to home, um, especially if you have like military families or veterans at the table, right? Like it w- you don't want to make light of like PTSD because that might be a challenge that somebody that, that could be very close to somebody that you might not realize. Right. Like, I would I would lean maybe a little away from too much verisimilitude, uh, just because you you don't want to um, stir up any issues that people are gaming to get away from. Which right. is why, like, you want to have that conversation at the table. You want to make sure that people know that the X card is available. Um, you know, if something comes up that people don't want to deal with, that's fine. You like put your hand on the table or like pick up the X card that is on the table and like no questions asked. People just sort of close the scene, move on to something else. Right. I would say, especially if you're trying to play these for like the comedy or the tragic comedy kind of angle, like especially make sure that you've got like buy-in to do that. Um, Cause it, it could be, that can be really insensitive. <laughs> right. But you can also find out that like a lot of the guys that I've gamed with who, you know, have actually been in combat zones are sometimes the ones who are like most into like the farcical aspects of it, right? Like the absurdity of the catch 22 type game. For sure. Yeah. Um, so like just make sure you're actually having that conversation and you'll find out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you also can get into a situation where you just end up stripping all the agencies away from the PCs. Like you've given them an order. They don't really want to do it. They're stuck doing it anyway, no matter what. And now you've got five sessions of not really liking what you're doing. Yeah. So this is this is making sure that you have flexible parameters. But then also, like, even as you're going through the mission, a lot of times, like, there's a there's a definite GM thing where you say, well, I mean, you guys can do that, but you know that some other party isn't going to like that very much. Right. And like, and in this case it's like, Oh, well, you know, high command isn't going to like that you're doing that. And like you, you have effectively with a sentence railroaded them back onto some other plot. Right. Unless you make it clear that like this, that high command is basically the police commissioner who's like going to yell at you, but like probably won't make you like give in your gun and badge until the very end when like, Hey, we're mercenaries or PIs. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Loose cannon. (laughs) Uh, so I, I would just try and let them make the best decisions in the moment with the information they have and then let them deal with the consequences. Uh, I think 40K actually does a pretty decent job of this where like if you're playing only war and you're in the Imperial Guard, you do what the Commissar says or they're going to shoot you in the head. Mm-hmm. But if you are a little bit higher up or you're, you know, you're not like a grunt, like a trench grunt, then I don't know, you might spend a session figuring out how to kill your Commissar. 
<laughs> well, that's a, that's a very 40k way of handling the problem, right? Um, right. But also, like in 40k, right? There's a lot of fiction that focuses on like the exceptions, like the commissars who do see the big picture, mm. or the um, like the commanders who are willing to fight with the commissar to protect their men who make those kind of improvisations, right? So there's there's definitely ways to make sure that players feel like they can do the best that they can. Right. Ibram Gond is an interesting character because he is a commissar who actually believes that, like, you know, making his troops better is better for everyone. Right. Or like uh, Iron Hand Strachan from the, the Katachans, like, he is a commissar, he turned out that the Katachins actually tolerated him and didn't shoot him. Um, so he ended up becoming their colonel um, and gave up the commissarship because he saw like, oh, like this iron discipline isn't necessary with these crazy death worlders <laughs> who fight for fun. Do they shoot all the new commissars now? <laughs> they typically do. Okay. <laughs> um, it's also possible where you can run a game that is so bleak that it seems like trying to win is pointless because there's no way you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like only so many ways or only so many times that you can like die in a trench to artillery that you never saw coming before you kind of wonder why am I still rolling up characters or, you know, you eventually like lose enough pieces of yourself physically that like, are you even playing the same character anymore? And like, and like, what's the point? Yeah. Or like, you know, you can kind of be dragged so far down into the morass of war, right? That you lose sort of the vision of why are we fighting and why is this war important? And like, what am I doing here? Like, that can be really like difficult as a player to get excited to go to game night to go live that experience. Right. Like, oh, here we go. It's a Wednesday night and I'm going to have to decide yet again if we burn this village. Right. (laughs) Debbie Downer, the RPG. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Shane, to to wrap this up, like, what do you think makes a wartime game really good and fun? It's the focus on the people, not on the war itself, right? Like, keep in mind the role-playing aspect of this. It is not a war game. It is a role-playing game. Like, the game has to be about the people involved. Yeah, I think when people say, hey, I want to play a wartime game, they're not actually saying that I want to play a war game, right? Right. What they're saying is I want to play like Band of Brothers. Exactly. Like I want to play Saving Private Ryan, which which is like those movies are, are character studies. You know, exactly. there's a tiny group of them and they're they're all out like together and like they want the camaraderie and they want the the repercussions like on a personal level. Right. And, and I mean, I think part of that is signing up for some degree of loss, right? Like recognizing that like not every character we start with is going to make it, but that's because it's like a drama, not an action movie, <laughs> right? Like, like part of this is like the, the, the interpersonal relationship between the characters is sort of the highlight. And then it's intercut with these like very intense action scenes and, and very pivotal and dangerous action scenes, but still like, you have that cooldown period afterwards where the 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 people get to interact with each other and get to deal with the consequences. Yeah, I would venture to say that like if you want to play a game that is mostly action uh, and is not dealing so much with like personal repercussions or like interpersonal drama, you should play a spy game. Those are great, mm-hmm. you know. But you get to do the same kind of stuff and not worry about all the repercussions and like be suave and smooth and like uh, like uh, an amazing combatant and and like get blown out of windows and like pick yourself up 
like brush off the glass and keep walking in your tux yes exactly whereas if you want to play a wartime game what you're really dealing with is like mud on your boots and barely surviving a firefight and you know holding your your neighbor's like internal organs inside them while you try to get the medical attention right um and then dealing with the loss of your best friend next to you right yeah and i think that seems counterintuitive there's that dichotomy of you are actually playing a melodrama but the the backdrop is a war zone Mm -hmm. yeah like um think of like the end of saving private ryan right like tom hanks is like every single man in his platoon except ryan is dead and he's laying on his back with a pistol shooting at a tank that is about to roll over him uh, as he loses the village or the bridge that they were attempting to hold in vain right and like that's the end of the movie except it isn't (laughs) right like at the last second like a bomber comes in blows up the tank the allied army shows up and saves them it's too late for tom hanks and it all gets brought home because you realize the very beginning like the movie starts in a cemetery in arlington cemetery and like the movie ends with the same man crying over a grave and you realize that's tom hanks's grave right and it's like his last words resonate at the end of the movie because of the sacrifice that he made 50 years prior i mean if you make it about your boyfriend that's a melodrama right (laughs) (laughs) right right play that game play that game exactly All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, all I hear is Tom Hanks's final words ringing in my ears. What were those last words, I don't Ishan? remember. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> it was like, uh, it was something like, you better lead a good life. Uh, something about a box of chocolates. Was that it? Uh, that was it. Yep. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, if we're getting a box of chocolates, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And if you would like to see pictures of uh, Fitz the Podcat, you can get them on Discord. Follow the link in the show notes. So this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Kobold Press. If your 5th edition adventures take you deep into the dark woods, you'll want to check out the 5e Margreve Player's Guide from Kobold Press. The old Margreve Forest is an ancient wood filled with magic, treasures, and dangers, like all ancient forests. Yeah, I really like the idea that I could play uh, a pretty kick-ass Little Red Riding Hood game with this book. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's got uh, everything you need to journey into the Margreve or the forest in your favorite campaign setting. Like in Bavaria, those creepy, terrifying forests filled with wolves. Talking wolves. Talking wolves. Right, (laughs) in Bavaria. disguising (laughs) self-wolves. Yes, with, I don't know, bellies like snakes somehow. (laughs) (laughs) So what's in the Margreve Player's Guide? Well, uh, you get three new playable races. Is one of them talking wolves? There's only one way to find out, and that's (laughs) two. Check out the Marcus Player's Guide. You'll also get forest-themed class options for barbarians, clerics, druids, rangers, rogues, warlocks, and wizards. I hope one of them is huntsmen. That would be great. And you'll get 13 new companion beasts, 6 new feats, and 45 new spells. There are also new magic items, such as the Bracelet of the Fire Tender, 
circlet of holly and the sickle of thorns now i really like the bracelet of the fire tender because that makes me think like less of um less of like the person who makes sure that the campfire keeps going throughout the night and more makes me think of like somebody who's just like cuddling fire you know right just like just sweet uh, tender right. fire it keeps me warm at night but they don't have any particular res- resistance to fire they just get burnt a lot yeah, yeah. <laughs> it hurts but it's it worth so it good <laughs> you know like relationships <laughs> all right so look for the margrave player's guide for fifth edition at your local game store or buy it online at cobaltpress.com all right so this week in the character creation forge shane uh i believe we are building that uh world-renowned tactician and and general scorpion yep (laughs) (laughs) look the the forges don't have to line up with they don't always line up they didn't always they they didn't used to yeah this this has been on the list for a long time uh it was requested way back in the day and i don't quite remember by who but at any rate uh who's scorpion so scorpion is one of the characters from the fighting game franchise mortal Kombat. uh he is an undead ninja seeking revenge for his own death and he is a member of a ninja clan associated with fire i bet you didn't know all of that did you uh i actually didn't i mean ninja i knew okay yeah yeah he's actually he's the guy who throws a spear into your tra- chest drags you next to him and then uppercuts you into next week like that right was his i think thing. i believe you learn that he is already dead when he like pulls off his mask and it's a skull and then he breathes a bunch of fire and then he says toasty no i thought that was noob Saibot. nope toasty i believe is a scorpion fatality well people are gonna add us and let us know okay <laughs> uh isn't he a Sub-Zero's mortal enemy or immortal yes. enemy? I don't know. Uh, Sub-Zero, I think in the fiction, Sub-Zero killed his family. Like he uh, was the agent uh, who actually like killed his family. Um, and then he is also part of a rival ninja clan because like his is an ice-focused elemental ninja clan Ooh. and he's fire out right it's mm-hmm. they, they keep they keep adding to the lore. The lore wasn't super well built out in the beginning. I don't know if you know this. Uh no, and then you know Sonya Blade, Blade was uh, uh that ring focused ninja, and Melina was part of a a fan focused ninja clan. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go with that. Why not? I think that's right. No, it's definitely not right. <laughs> no, okay, think... so what's the build? <laughs> the build is gonna be Dragonborn, Fiend Warlock two, Druid one, Shadow Sorcerer three, Monk fourteen. Uh, this is uh Way of the Four Elements Monk fourteen. This is interesting. Okay. So, from Pact of the Fiend Warlock, we'll get Burning Hands as a bonus spell and two invocations, one of which will be Mask of Many Faces because what? Scorpion wears a face mask that's not actually his face? Uh yeah, and if you're if you're going to peel back your mask and breathe fire and not let people know that you're a dragonborn, you've got to disguise self, right? Pretty sick. Also, temp HP when he uh, kills an enemy, probably by spearing them in the chest, dragging them over, and then uppercutting them, yeah? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Speaking of which, we're going to have to figure out a way to spear somebody in the chest and drag them over. So, huh. only way to do that is the Thorn Whip cantrip, which is only available to druids. So, here we are, Druid 1. Wonderful. Uh, I believe that lets you make a 30-foot melee attack. Yes. Uh, to spear someone because you can drag them closer to you correct um and it's damn it does damage it does scale a little bit um as you go higher level so that's helpful 
Uh, from Shadow Sorcerer, we get Eyes of the Dark, give Dark Vision to 120 feet, and Strength of the Grave, which lets you make a Charisma saving throw to drop to 1 HP instead of 0 once per day. Yep, and then at uh, level 3 from um, Shadow Sorcerer, you also learn the Darkness spell, which you can cast for 2 spell points, uh, for 2 sorcery points. You'll almost never use that because you're here for metamagic, um, specifically Quicken Spell. Uh, you've only got three sorcery points, um, but you can refill them with all of your uh, warlock and sorcerer spell slots because you're not a spellcaster. Like, you're really only here to throw your thorn whip, drag them closer to you, and then uppercut them to next week. Well, you'll do that with 14 levels of Way of the Four Elements Monk because you get 14 key points. Uh, you'll be doing 1d8 unarmed damage, and your base movement increases by 25 feet. Yeah, so the plus 25 feet of base movement... Um, scorpion actually gets an attack where he teleports um like behind the target and then like hits them which you don't exactly have that ability here i mean i guess you could take misty step as a spell to do that but um i like this because you can move super fast so you just run behind them punch them and then run back and you're still yeah you can drop a key point to uh disengage with step of a wind or something like that right yeah then you can get behind them without provoking You'll get the other usual monk stuff, uh, unarmored defense, slow fall, extra attack, stunning strike, evasion, stillness of mind, and a charmer frightened effect. You know, a lot of undead can do that. Yeah, uh, leaning into this undead theme, I don't know why people didn't see this coming. Uh, You get 10 levels, uh, or at level 10, you'll get purity of body, which makes you immune to disease and poison. You get three elemental disciplines. Uh, You got suggestions for those, Shane? Yeah, so... There's only a few fire ones that you have access to. Um, I would take Sweeping Cinder Strike, which lets you cast Burning Hands for two key. Um, then Clench of the North Wind, uh, technically not fire-themed, but it lets you cast Hold Person for three key points, uh, which is exactly what it feels like to get hit by that Thorn Whip and then just be standing there for a second helpless. feels yeah. like a Hold Person. Um, and then, of course, you can use Flames of the Phoenix, which lets you cast Fireball for four key um that feels like some some bad fire breath uh you'll get tongue of the sun and moon to understand and speak all languages uh can scorpion do that because he's some sort of like outworlder i don't they only ever really speak english that i can remember in the movies they don't i mean the game they certainly only speak english (laughs) yeah sometimes with an accent but you don't hear the other language they're actually speaking natively exactly uh, and then uh, level 14 proficiency in all saving throws. I will say, if you want to take a feat, you can take Spell Sniper, which will actually double the range of your Thorn Whip to 60 feet. Yes. Uh, if you really need to drag them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're a bit far away. I said get over here! I mean, ironically, if they had increased its range in the game itself, it would have been a way worse ability because it would have taken that much longer for the animation. It would have taken oh that God, much right. longer. You were helpless. <laughs> So in terms of leveling order, you will start with Warlock 2, then take Druid 1, uh, take five levels of Monk. That pretty much makes you Scorpion. Um, and then you want to be able to accelerate the Thorn Whip, so we'll take our three levels of Sorcerer and then finish out Monk 14. Uh, this is definitely a very high-level-oriented build. You need basically 11 levels before you really feel like Scorpion. I mean, Scorpion's a high-level character. That's true. All right, so before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. 
So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're continuing our series on different campaign settings, and we'll be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a campaign setting. Oh, well, I guess I actually have done the research for this because I've seen 11 out of 26 films. Well, have you really seen that many? No, I've actually seen probably 16. I'm really surprised about that. I thought you would have seen maybe two. I fly on planes a lot. Ah, I see. Yep. Uh, and in the Character Creation Forge? We're building your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Well, that's it for episode 203 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Behold Her share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found, or visit beholdherpodcast.com.